Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try to help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. So we're going to continue our series of signposts on 1 Peter and today I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at the first verse. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, I think I've said several times before, uh, even in this series, that the church in the West is in terminal decline and the desire to increase membership and attendance has led to an increasing interest in church growth and evangelism. But church growth is more than just about numbers. Unless there is spiritual growth in discipleship within the congregation, evangelistic efforts are unlikely to have much of an impact. The problem is not so much that folks are not uh, becoming Christians, but rather that people who are Christians are leaving the church. Peter assumes that the church will grow as a natural consequence of Christians living as disciples of Christ in the world, so his concern is for the continued spiritual health and development of those congregations. And he focuses on two aspects of growth. Firstly, on the development of spiritual maturity in individual converts and the development of the whole fellowship into a loving family. The therefore of verse 1 points us back to Peter's comments regarding the need for genuine love amongst church members. For genuine love to grow and for the church to be formed into a loving community, they must rid themselves of attitudes and behaviours that hinder or countermand that love and damage the community of faith. The verb that he uses refers to taking off one's clothes. And Peter lists five things that they must rid themselves of. And his list should probably be understood as a representative rather than a final definitive list. Malice is the desire to harm other people in some way. It's often mentioned in the so-called vice lists in the New Testament and described as evil. And, and in it, it encapsulates the, the four things on the Peter's list here, in that they are all expressions of malice. 
Deceit is a deliberate attempt to mislead other people, often through lying or twisting the truth so that it gives a false meaning, usually with the intent of harming another person in some way. In verse 22, Peter reminds his readers that deceit is unchristlike. Hypocrisy is a plural, and so Peter means all kinds of hypocrisy. Its basic form is to pretend to be one thing when in fact you are another, like pretending to be someone's friend when in fact you're their enemy seeking to do them harm. Envy is the longing for what other people have, whether in material goods or in knowledge or wisdom or skill or even in looks, whatever. To envy others is to explicitly break the Tenth Commandment, not to covet things that are not ours. <clears throat> In John 3, the baptizer says that no one can receive anything unless it is given by heaven. Envy, therefore, expresses a lack of contentment with what God has given us. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. Slander is to say something false or damaging about another person to defame their character. Uh, and this is an issue that Peter picks up again in verse 12 and verse 15. Each one of these negative qualities must be gotten rid of because they interfere with the activity of love and so they prevent the church from becoming the loving community that God desires it to be. And we should really notice that each of the things that Peter tells them to remove from their lives is an actual type of behaviour. It's not just an attitude. And Peter is crystal clear that these types of behaviour are inconsistent with our new identity as Christians. And if, if we identify them within ourselves, um, maybe after the fact, after we've, we've been hypocritical or deceitful or whatever, or envious, then we need to come to God and get rid of those things uh, and seek his help in getting rid of them from our lives, repent of them. Sadly, I and many others know that such behaviours are all too prevalent in the church today. And I suspect that that fact is not disconnected from the decline in membership and attendance. Peter's call to rid our lives of these love-destroying behaviours is as relevant now as it was then. He tells them to crave pure spiritual milk. The phrase is used in a metaphorical and non-literal sense. As McKnight notes, it refers to the very things that nourish the Christian community in its growth of love. Knowledge of God, prayer, instruction in the gospel, faithful obedience and hearing God's preached word. But growth is impossible without the proper nourishment. And so Peter says that just as a newborn baby desires milk, they should desire the spiritual nourishment that will bring them to mature faith. The basis for this desire is that they've already tasted that the Lord is good. They've already received spiritual nourishment in Christ. And it's not insignificant that Peter identifies that spiritual nourishment with the Lord. I would, recently I read the story of a, a woman explaining a conversation that she'd had with someone, an older lady, expressing her desire for her church to gain influence, to reach more people and change uh, many more lives. And I'm sure that many people would applaud that desire. It seems good and right. But the lady uh, that she was speaking to interrupted her and said, no, 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 be careful. 
More isn't always a sign of growth. You can grow in influence, have lots more people, more money, more buildings. But if you haven't grown in the presence of Jesus among you and in his love for the poor, then what you're talking about isn't healthy growth at all. It's just swelling. And swelling is what happens when something is infected or broken. The Pilgrim Way approves that message. In verse 4, Peter shifts metaphors from newborn babies to stones. The metaphor of a stone or rock is a common one in the First Testament and often used to describe God as Israel's foundation and security. And Peter's using it here in exactly the same way, describing Jesus as the living stone. The stone is a living stone because Jesus is living. As Peter Davids writes, the image of Jesus as a living stone designates Christ not as a monument or dead principle, but as a living, resurrected and therefore life-giving one. <coughs> Excuse me. The basis for Peter's declaration is probably Psalm 118 verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Ephesians 2 and 20, uh, Paul uses the same term to describe Jesus as the chief cornerstone of the household that God is building. The cornerstone, sometimes also called the foundation stone, is the most important stone for it anchors the whole building together. It is in this sense that Peter is using the term here. The word that he actually uses refers to a stone that has been tooled by a craftsman, whether a building stone or a precious stone. It's not simply a rough, uncut stone lying in a field somewhere. And Peter says two things about Jesus as the living stone. Firstly, he was and is rejected by men. And secondly, he was and is the cause of their stumbling. The word translated as rejected means rejected having been examined and tested. The Jews rejected Jesus because when they tested his claim, they ruled that he didn't fit in with their idea of what the Messiah would be like. He spoke of the suffering servant and they were looking for a conquering hero. In that sense, he failed their test. But he passed God's. By the standards of divine perfection, Jesus was declared to be the beloved Son, in whom God the Father was well pleased. In fact, we can say that uh, although they have passed it over as being unfit for purpose, the stone in question has been chosen by the architect as the perfect cornerstone. Peter's point is very simple, but it's also crucial for these believers and therefore for us to grasp. He's saying that those who come to faith in Christ will be built into the walls of the building of which Christ is the foundation stone, and together they form a spiritual house. For those who have rejected Jesus and the message of the gospel, he's become a cause of stumbling. As Marshall puts it, if people reject Christ, the rejection will be their own undoing. The stone is set there by God's purpose so that if people refuse to build on it, it will become the means of their ruin. And furthermore, these believers that, that Peter's writing to can be comforted for if they've been rejected by, by men, by their neighbours and fellow citizens in the cities where they live. Well, so was Jesus rejected by men. But it's worth pausing for a moment, I think, to consider what Peter means by the phrase spiritual house. One of the ways that Christians uh, stood out in the first century was that unlike their neighbours, in fact, for several centuries, they did not worship in temples, but rather they met in one another's homes. 
and that fact alone would have caused their neighbours to think of this new religion as strange and certainly inferior. By now we will be getting a sense of why these um, believers have no need to feel inferior in any way, for they've been given an inheritance that will never spoil or fade, a living hope kept for them by God, and they're being built into a people belonging to, to God, and they themselves, not the buildings that they meet in, are his temple. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that Christians collectively are the temple of God? Um, well, firstly, it means that when people become Christians, they enter into a union with Christ and with his church. They become part of his church, part of that spiritual building. In other words, the church is not the building, it's the people of God. And I know in one faith tradition, we, 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 that's our theological position. We know that theologically, but I think actually um, uh, we give lip service to it in practice. We talk about going to the church when we talk when we really mean we're going to the building that the church uses. The church is the people of God, the gathered community of those who are in Christ. And I think that's a theological truth that has all, all but been forgotten. And even when it's not forgotten, as I say, we do pay kind of tend to pay lip service to it. It's certainly a world away from how we think about the practice of membership of a local church today. My own faith tradition and others have processes in place that enable someone to enter into membership of a local congregation. And there are varied, uh, good and even legal reasons for, for having those processes. But the only church membership that the New Testament writers understand is being in Christ. Of course, there is a big discussion to be had about the differences between the universal church and the local church in the modern world. And unfortunately, we don't have time to explore that today. But I do think it is an important issue. Western cultures deify the individual. We prioritise individual rights. And in fact, the current dilemmas over trans rights are really an extension of that kind of philosophy and uh, an exploration, if you like, of the limits of the rights of individual expression. In Star Trek, the, the reason the Borg are the most feared enemy of the Federation is that they assimilate captives into their collective, stripping away their individuality. This is the thing that is, is, makes them the most feared enemy. It's that loss of individuality that we, in the modern world, certainly uh, horrifies us. But in Eastern culture, certainly in the cultures that, that Peter lived in, um, even today it's still the same. It's not the individual who is of primary importance. It is firstly the whole family, followed by the wider community. The individual's identity is founded on the fact that they belong to a larger group. And how they live and what they do is to benefit that larger group. It's benefiting the, the, and, and the, the flourishing of the larger group that is their primary importance in life, not necessarily their own benefit and their own rights and their own self. And I can't help but wonder if how different the local church would be if we prioritised the church collectively, if we understood that we are part of this community of 
people, this beloved community, this fellowship of love in Christ. And if we made that a higher priority than our own rights and our own individual self-expression, I wonder how different our churches would be. Secondly, as many commentators point out, the church has the character of a temple and, and fulfills the function of a temple. The temple was the place where the gods were said to meet with man and it was there that the sacrifices and worship to the gods was offered. And it was the same in Judaism with the temple in Jerusalem. And so Christians are to offer spiritual sacrifices and worship. And that phrase spiritual sacrifices, what does it really mean? Good question, I think. Well, the New Testament lists at least six forms of sacrifice that we have to bring. We have to bring our bodies, Romans 12 and 1. You know, our, our allegiance to Jesus is to be an embodied allegiance. We have to live out uh, our, that claim that we have that Jesus is the saving king. In our praise and worship, Hebrews 13 and 15, we have to bring um, a sacrifice of good deeds and sharing with others, Hebrews 13 and 16. We bring our witness or testimony about Jesus. In Romans 15, Paul kind of talks about the Romans being uh, his sacrifice to God. We bring our sacrificial love for others, Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. And of course, we bring our prayers as well. In Revelation, um, the prayers are seen as a sacrifice to God. So it's all these things. There may, maybe there are other, others there as well. And thirdly, the church stands in continuity with the people of God since the calling of Abram. The church was not God's plan B. He always had in mind to call together a people for himself. I know it's popular in some uh, sections of the church today to think that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God. And I can understand how they uh, would think that. And there's certainly some texts that kind of lean towards that. But actually, I think N.T. Wright is closer to the mark with his idea that the story of the church is actually the continuing story of Israel. And it's really interesting in the New Testament how much um, Paul and others uh, frame the gospel in terms of the story of Israel and its ongoing, uh, that story being on, told in an ongoing way through the church. As the church, these believers now then have a new identity as the church, um, not as just individuals, but as the church, collectively the people of God. And Peter closes this section with a brief description of what that means, what it looks like, who they are in Christ. And firstly, he says they're a chosen nation, and that links them to Jesus, the chosen stone, in verses 4 and 6. And here Peter is restating a New Testament truth that Christians are what they are by virtue of their union with Christ, sharing in his status and privileges. We don't uh, earn or deserve salvation and all the blessings that God has promised to those who have come in faith to Christ. We, we are given all those things. We share his status and his privileges uh, by virtue of being in union with him. It's our union with Christ that now provides our primary identity. 
Um, secondly, this privilege of union with Christ is also a call to service. We are a royal priesthood. In the Bible, a priest is someone who has access to God and who offers sacrifices on behalf of those who don't have uh, access. What that means, of course, is that all Christians fulfil this function, not just those who are especially ordained uh, as in certain church traditions to be priests. And we've mentioned already uh, some of the, the kind of sacrifices that we are meant to bring. And thirdly, they are a holy people chosen by God. And that means that they and we belong to God in a way that others do not. There's a sense that all humanity are God's children in that all people are made in God's image. But here's a very kind of specific application of that, that we have been chosen uh, by God um, and are in Christ. As Marshall notes, the Greek phrase here conveys the sense that, that these believers are particularly significant and a precious possession to God and therefore the object of his special care. And all of this is in order that they might declare the praises of God who has called, chosen and commissioned them. And Peter closes this section of his letter with a, a quotation from Hosea. The phrase, not my people, is most likely a direct reference to the Gentiles within the congregation who were outside of the nation of Israel but who have now been grafted in, adopted into God's family. They are now part of the people of God. Once they were not part of the people of God, now they are. Once they had not received mercy, but now they have. There's a a story about Napoleon, I don't know if it's true, I've not been able to verify it, but the story goes that um, <clears throat> a widow appealed to Napoleon for mercy for her son who had displeased the, the emperor in some way. And uh, Napoleon said to her that her son did not deserve mercy, to which she replied that if he deserved it, it would not be mercy, and mercy is what I ask. That was the situation that the members of these churches were in and that we are in today. Once we were not God's people, once we had not received mercy, but now we are God's people. Now we have received mercy. And Peter is writing all of this and in the, the first chapter he wants them to have confidence in the gospel. And here he, he seems to want them to have confidence in their new identity as those who are in Christ. And so for these believers and for us today, the important phrase in this passage that we've um, explored today, uh, one that shapes the whole letter, in fact, is, but now, once we were not the people of God, once we had not received mercy, but now we are, now we have. And it's in light of that phrase that we are called to live. To live as those who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, the saving King. Thanks for listening.